Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Injured at work in a motor vehicle accident or had a fall in a public space? Speak to Your Claim Lawyers, a no-win, no-fee, personal injury claims law firm that specialises in maximising compensation claims for injured people. Call 1-800-YOUR-CLAIM or yourclaimlawyers.com.au. This is Your Sporting Life with Peter Donegan for Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. And what a pleasure it is to have your company for another edition of This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. Today we celebrate the life of a man who has been one of Australia's most recognisable sportsmen for a long time, over many decades. He has carried the Australian flag with pride, not only in this country, but on the world stage in the great game of golf. I'm delighted to have Craig Parry as my guest on the program. Paz, welcome to you. Thanks, Peter. How are you going, mate? I'm going very well. We're not in the same studio. You're up in uh, beautiful Sydney and I'm down in uh, slightly chillier Melbourne. How's life these days? Do you pick up the clubs much these days, Paz? Uh, not very often. I, I, when I go and play golf, I go and play with my boys or just out with some social golfers and uh, just enjoy my game. How is the family, by the way? They uh, are growing up all too quickly, I guess. Yeah, very quickly. And my daughter, she's getting married this year in November, and uh, the two boys, uh, 23 and 21, so uh, they're at home. But you know, everyone's very well, and uh, my wife is uh, doing well as well. You're making me feel reasonably old, Paz, by saying that April is getting married, uh, because I remember the kids running around when you were on tour, and you know we'd see each other up at Coolum, and the family would be there, and uh, it seems as though they've grown up very quickly. <laughs> Yeah, it goes very fast, and uh, you know you're right. I mean, it, 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 you see the kids grow from little babies all the way up to adults, and uh, you know getting married, it, it goes fast. Well, April's actually got a connection with uh, golf, hasn't she? Because she didn't she get her name from that little tournament that's played in April. No, we just like the month of April. It wasn't because of the guts okay. at all. Right so we'll, we'll let the facts uh, just be the facts. Yeah, never let the facts stand in the way of a good story. We'll talk about the Masters and we'll talk about your um, journey around the world stage. As I said, it's been on the world stage for so long. What are you doing with yourself these days, golf-wise? I know you got yourself involved in some design. Uh, is that still something that you do? Yeah, at the moment I'm up at uh, Teven Valley, which is up near Ballina. And it's a little nine-holer and uh, we're more or less halfway through uh, the golf course and it's turning out fantastic and, uh, you know, it's when it's all done, it'll be pretty special. So what does your eye see when you see a, a block of land that you are going to have to turn into um, a championship golf course or, a, you know, a very playable golf course for the members? So what do you look for when you see a block of land and think, I can make this into a course? 
Well, it goes back to all the years of playing golf and, you know, the undulations, the slopes, the topography of the land itself and, you know, what you're actually trying to achieve. You go back to all the golf courses you've played in the world and, you know, what would suit the the land itself and uh, you know for example the golf course I'm doing up at Teven uh, it, it's going to be a golf course that people on 18 handicap uh, will play well because mm. they won't go for the the, the flag placements out the sides of the greens but the greens are going to be reasonably uh, in, in size and uh, they'll be able to you know make some pars and get themselves around but if you tuck the flag placings and that's when it'll make it difficult and the the better player will be tested so you know it's a matter of trying to test all different golfers and uh you know make sure that when they're finished they go well that was really enjoyable i want to come back and play it i I really hate golf courses that are too demanding and uh the bunkers are in front of the greens and you know the the ball runs away from the green and it, it runs off in a you know, either water or trees or, um, you know, just penalising good shots. I really drives me nuts. I guess that's really important, Paz, because uh, you have to remember that not everybody plays to your standard. Not everybody is as good as you are. And there are those of us who hack the ball around who enjoy the game of golf. And you have to cater for those people as well as the people who want to play a daunting championship layout. Oh, look, you're totally right. I think you actually go the other way as far as you make the golf course enjoyable and then people will walk away going, well, that was fun, I want to come back. Um, anyone can make a golf course tough. That's just really easy to do. But to make it enjoyable and where they go, you know, that was worth spending my time out in the golf course. What's the length of the procedure when you first stand on the block of dirt and you get in your mind's eye a picture of what you might think it would look like when it's completed? From start to finish, how long does it take? As a rule, about three years uh, where you start and you get all your approvals and then it probably takes you a year to two years to actually uh, make the golf course. And do you get input from the people who are shelling the money in or basically are they putting their faith in you and saying, all right, uh, we might have a a bit of an idea as to what it might look like, but we're going to put our faith in you? Yeah, the one I'm doing up at Teven at the moment, the guy who owns the the land and the golf course, and uh, he he just came to us and said, uh, look, I want you to build the best nine-hole golf course in Australia. And... He's put faith in myself and uh, the guy building it, Paul Gumbledon, used to be up at uh, Monash and uh, he's come up and he's building a golf course for us. And I I would say that um, you you get a lot of input from the the guy building the golf course, uh, supers that are in around that area. They know what type of grasses you use and, and what would work in the area. And as far as the golf course itself, um, you know, I've more or less got free run to do what I want on the golf course. The one, know, as far as design. Yeah. The one thing that I've seen, Paz, doing as many tournaments as I do in Asia these days, and of course we know what the weather's like in Asia, in certain parts of Asia, one of the most important things about a golf course is drainage. Uh, is that an important factor in this part of the world as well? Because the drainage in some of the Asian golf courses is phenomenal now. Yeah, it's probably not as much as what you need to have up in Asia because they do get the the typhoons that go through and the very heavy rains in the afternoon, whereas in Australia we don't tend to have that and if it's raining that heavy, you don't want to be out there playing golf anyway. So, you know, it's a little bit different. Um, You do have to have better drainage in Asia. 
Is golf course design something that you always wanted to get involved in or did it just basically progress in your journey in golf? No, even as a young, young fellow when I lived in Sunshine, uh, I always used to get a piece of paper and, you know, design 18 holes and uh, when I was just watching TV and just draw them out and, you know, what I would have as a golf course. So I've probably done it for a long, long time. Now, you touched on the fact that as a young fellow you were in Sunshine here in Victoria. I've asked you this question before and I'll ask it again. When they put the bracket after your name and they put the state after your name, there are three states that lay claim to you, Paz. Vic? because you were born here, uh, WA because you moved there, and New South Wales because you lived there. Now, which one do you put after your name? I put New South Wales. Oh, I don't say that. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, look, I, I live here. Um, look, it, it, in no other country do we have such a, a rivalry between states. <laughs> I mean, you know, I, I love my Western Bulldogs, and I'll always follow them. Uh, Western Australia gave me uh, many opportunities to go overseas and, and play golf, um, representing the state, and then for Australia as well. My parents still live there, but I've lived in Sydney since uh, 1988, so it's pretty hard to put another name behind my name. I guess so, but we'll still claim you if that's okay. Um, speaking of the Western Bulldogs, what was that moment like for you a couple of years ago, that magical moment? Mate, I, I couldn't get home. I was in America playing the Champions Tour, but I had it up on AFL Live with my son. He's a, a, a mad Bulldog supporter as well. And we're screaming at the TV. We're in a hotel, and luckily no one complained uh, otherwise. <laughs> it, look, I mean, it was a wonderful occasion and, um, you know, something that I'll always remember. And, you know, the, the celebrations going on after the game as well, you know, the way the supporters... Um, rallied around the team. I mean, the team played fantastic. And uh, as you can see here that I'm still emotional about it now, I think it was fantastic. Yeah, I remember being in Perth for the first of the finals when they played the West Coast Eagles in the first week of the finals and they'd made changes to the team. And the Eagles people were talking about what they were going to do in the second week of the finals when they beat the Bulldogs. They got slightly ahead of themselves, but it was just, it was almost as though, Paz, it was meant to be that month. Everything just came together. Well, that's right. I mean, even the, the game before the Eagles, we played Fremantle. Yeah. We weren't doing that well for the year, and then there was a bye, and we got beaten by Fremantle, and all of a sudden had to go back over to WA. And uh, the, the boys just gelled. I mean, it was great to see. And then, you know, come back and beat Hawthorne the following week, and then GWS in Sydney. It was like a home game for the guys. And, uh, you know, look, I was, I was in America the whole time watching it all uh, unfold, and uh, I wish I'd been in Australia and especially at the MCG when they won, but not to be. Yeah, well, I was lucky enough to be there. And you mentioned that GWS game. Uh, there would have been, I think, 24,000 people at the Spotless Stadium that night, but the atmosphere was phenomenal that night. It was one of the more memorable games that I've ever been associated with, and and that was when a few people started to believe that this there was a whole sense of destiny about all of this. Oh, when they run out onto the ground, it was like a home game. Yeah. I mean, you know, the, the the spectators that come up, obviously, from Melbourne, they were vocal and, you know, obviously lifted the boys and the way they finished it was just a cracker of a game. Now, given the fact that you've already said you've got NSW after your name and you're talking about the Bulldogs, have they converted you to rugby league or are you still just an AFL boy? No, I'm I'm AFL. However, I, I do watch a bit of the, uh, the NRL. I've got friends that play in the NRL now and uh, you know I, I watch the teams I mean I like all sport I mean it's pretty hard not to and uh, you know they're great athletes but my game is the Aussie rules 
Is that the thing about golf, Paz? You talk about great athletes, and we, we notice great athletes in lots of sports, but golf is a game for everybody. And the thing about golf, too, is as well as catering for all shapes and sizes, but you can play it when you're 10, and you can play it when you're 70 if you want to. Yeah, that's right. I mean, you get all the other sports. I mean, obviously, because I'm a professional golfer, I'm playing proams, and you know, getting a mix with other sporting codes that you know go out and play golf, and they love their golf. And you know, you're very fortunate to to be in that position. But you know, the young kids growing up, as you say, you know, when you you bring uh, start the game at a young age, and you, you can play more or less until you hit the grave. And you know, one of the good things about our sport is we call our own penalties on ourselves. So that actually brings a whole new generation of people that are aware of repercussions. You know, you, you break the rules in golf, there's a penalty for it. In, in society, if you break the rules, there's a penalty for that. So the, the people get to understand, or the kids get to understand, you know, there's ramifications of what you do. Speaking of pro-ams, you would have played in plenty of pro-ams here in Australia and all around the world. Who's the partner that you were most in awe of in a in a pro am? Is there anybody particularly famous that you played with? Oh, probably yourself when we played. Oh, down cut in it out! No, <laughs> don't mention that. Do not mention that day and that cover drive uh, I hit yeah. down at Royal Melbourne. Yeah, exactly, exactly. I do remember it, mate. Um, no, oh, I mean, look, I've played... Well, there was one time in America where I got to play with four, four Hall of Famers from the NFL. Mm. Um, and one was Dan Marino, Bernie Kosak, Lawrence Taylor and Alexander, another guy. And the media, they come up to me and they said, what's it like playing with these guys? And it was my first year on the PJ Tour and I said, look, I don't really know them. This is back in the 80s. Yeah. And and um, they said, you don't know these guys? And I said, no. I said, uh, you know, I've grown up in Australia. I said, it'd be like bringing one of your American golfers out to Australia and pairing them with Dennis Lilly, Doug Walters and, and Tomo. Yeah. Uh, and it'd be the same type thing. But uh, these guys had a great day. And uh, after the round, we went in and had a drink. And, yeah, no, it was good. Yeah, I think it's fair enough to say that I think Dan Marino's probably got me covered, Paz. But anyway, that's a whole other story. <laughs> Why don't we take a break? And when we come back, we'll talk about the beginnings at Sunshine and the early steps in the wonderful career of Craig Parry, who's my guest on This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funeral, Celebrating Lives. More with Paz coming up after the break. This is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. And what a great pleasure and privilege it is to have Craig Parry as my guest on This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. Paz, you spoke about Sunshine. Tell us about growing up in that suburb and where did your love of golf emanate from? Well, grew up in Sunshine and um, I, I more or less started golf because of my grandparents. I used to spend a lot of time with my grandmother and grandfather and they were from Scotland, and uh, I used to go down and uh, hit balls on uh, down at Albion Football Club, or um, and just get out and just hit balls. And I played at Sunshine when I was young. Uh, joined the club when I was eight years old, and uh, they changed my birth date, the VGA, so that I could actually join the golf club. And um, you know, there was probably forty other juniors at that time 
probably ranging from eight years old up until you know 13 we used to play on a saturday morning play competition against each other and uh you know it was a, a good golf course to learn how to play golf because you know it wasn't the best course as far as condition wise but it actually taught you how to play the game how long before you got yourself down to scratch how old were you uh, I didn't get down to scratch until I was about 17. And uh, I, I was at Medway and, and uh, before I went off to WA, and I think I got down to scratch around about that time. So when did you realise, Paz, that you had what it takes to make a living from the game? Probably when I got to WA and I, I started, or I won a, a Southwest Open uh, against the professionals, and um, I, I knew I was probably ready to play then. I, I played in, I think, 13 uh, Australian PGA Tour events and made the cut in every one of those as well. So, you know, I was playing well, paired in the, in the tournaments with the better professionals and, uh, you know, I knew my game was pretty much on par with theirs so that I could earn some money out of the game. So what was the track? When you moved to WA, was it Fremantle where you played? Yeah, I was at Royal Fremantle. I joined a, a really good golf course over in there, and uh, you know, it used to be get wind, quite windy at Royal Fremantle. It's up on top of the hill, and um, you know, great members uh, were sorry. The members were great, and the, and the golf course was actually quite demanding. And it was a, a Kai golf course, and very narrow as far as off the tee. You know, you, you sprayed it. You were in, you know, the, the bush, and uh, you know, you, you were trying to work out ways to get it to the green. It had a lot of players that had played state golf. I think when I joined there, they had eight state players in their pennant team from the previous three years. So it was a very strong golf club. And when I played there, I went in at number three. And uh, that more or less put me into the junior team of WA and the senior team as well. So then I was given the opportunity. When we see young fellas coming up through the ranks these days, um, the amateurs playing well in professional tournaments, the question that we always ask in the commentary box, and it's written in the papers, when are they going to turn pro? When, when you did, was it an easy decision for you? Because you did so at a pretty young age. Yeah, I turned when I was 19. Uh, I, I actually applied to the PGA uh, of Australia and they allowed me to uh, turn pro straight away. Brett Ogle and I come through at the same time. It was easy because Australia weren't going to go to the World Cup in uh, South America because uh, South Africa were involved in, in the World Cup and we weren't uh, playing because of the apartheid back then. So it meant that I would have had to wait around another four years just to play for Australian amateur team. Uh, so I, I decided to turn pro and so did Brett. All right. Uh, I think the first win came, was it the New South Wales Open that you won your first big tournament? Uh, it was actually about a month earlier in, in Canada. It was the Canadian TPC at uh, Victoria. Okay. I, I won that one and, uh, you know, it was a, a tournament that opened up um, my career, really, because, you know, I got paid well for the tournament and then come back in Australia and I was, I was on a high through playing well overseas and uh, just happened to play well in the New South Wales Open where... Trevino was playing and, and Roger Davis as mm. well. Um, th they were pretty good players back in the day and you know I was paired with them the final round and we had to come back on the Monday to actually f finish the tournament because on the Sunday we had a huge storm and the Australian Golf Club was more or less like a lake and uh, we couldn't play but they made us come back on the Monday. 
And one of the early memories I have of you, and probably just about the first time I met you, was at the Masters in 88 when you made that famous playoff and it was Ian Baker Finch's year and it was his springboard to a great career. And you were in the playoff with the late Roger Mackay as well. They were the days, Paz, when golf was huge and the Masters was bigger than huge. Oh, yeah, it was a lot of fun to play the Masters. And, you know, a lot of that's attributed to Greg Norman as well. You know, back in those days, he was the number one golfer in the world. And and golf was really exciting. I mean, you know, we had massive crowds and IMG run a great tournament. And, you know, that 17th hole, the playoff, uh, even the the chip to to this day, uh, looks like it's going to go in. And Finchie was only a foot away. And that would have gone on for an extra hole. So... But, um, you know, that was all good. I mean, each time you got close to winning a tournament gave you a bit more um, credibility as far as your game's concerned, confidence, and that you were good enough to, to be in playing professional golf. Finchie's often said over the years, and he's probably said it to you, that that win was the catalyst for him taking the next step because he got such belief to be able to play in that pressure cooker atmosphere on that 17th at Huntingdale. He said that was part of the reason that he went on to win the Open Championship later on, having that grounding in that tournament. Oh, that's right. I mean, all all of us have that stepping stone where you just go, oh, yeah, I'm ready to play now. And the same thing with... uh, Jordan Spieth when he won the Australian Open before he won the Masters you could just see in his eyes when he won the Australian Open that gave him enough belief to go away and actually perform overseas in, in you know Augusta Speaking of Jordan Spieth um, I had the pleasure of being behind the mic when he shot that 63 in the final round of the Australian to win the Australian Open. Have you seen a better round than that under the circumstances in Australian golf? Uh, it it's probably is one of the best rounds in Australian golf. I mean, we've had so many good rounds over the time. Norman shooting really low at uh, Royal Canberra. I think he shot 61. I had his scorecard that day, uh, the old golf course there, and that was pretty amazing score. I played with Ernie Els when he shot nothing at Royal Melbourne. Mm. Uh, it, it goes right up there. I mean, the day that uh, Jordan, on the Sunday of the Australian Open, he won at the Australian, the, the golf course was really firm and, you know, I played early in the morning and I couldn't believe what he did. Yeah, and there was something um, about shooting 63 that day because 63 became a very famous number because that was the week that Phil Hughes actually passed away and and 63 was the number associated with him. And, uh, again, we talked about destiny with the Western Bulldogs. Maybe it was destiny that uh, Jordan was going to shoot 63 in that final round. Yeah, that, that's right. I mean, golf or sport can be eerie in, the, in that regard. All right. You've turned pro. Uh, you've had a great result uh, getting into the playoff at the Masters, that uh, result you talked about in Canada and at New South Wales. What about the early stages of your professional career? Was it dog-eat-dog dog or was there that sense of mateship that seemed so present amongst the Australian golfers? Yeah, it was more mateship. Uh, when, I, when I first came out on the tour... I was quite fortunate that, that I played pretty well and, you know, kept making little improvements each year. And when I joined the European Tour, I finished third on the, at the qualifying school. And my first year, I finished, I think, 24th on the Order of Merit, which was uh, pretty good for a rookie. And uh, in the following year, I finished third on the, the European uh, Tour Order of Merit, so I was away. 
Um, my second event on the Europe, European Tour, I finished second to Greg Norman at the Italian Open. And, you know, more or less that was, you know, my shooting off into the stars. I was playing really good golf week after week. And you were playing pretty good golf when you got to Augusta in 1992. Yeah, I was playing really well. I mean, a couple of weeks earlier, we had uh, the, the Players' Championship. Uh, I finished sixth that week and uh, hit it in the water on the the, fifth, uh, the 16th hole. And otherwise, I was right there you know, in contention, had a chance of winning. And then uh, the week later was the um, New Orleans tournament where I played pretty well, but I didn't score all that well. And obviously, Augusta in 92 had uh, the lead with 15 holes to go. What's it like for, I think you were 26 at the time, what's it like for a 26-year-old to lead in probably the world's most famous tournament, the Open Championship, we'll talk about later, but the Masters has got that pizzazz about it everywhere you go. What's that experience like? Oh, look, it was, a, it was a lot of fun. It was very difficult. Uh, back in the day, the, the, I let the crowd actually influence what I was doing on the golf course and I three-putted the, the third hole, the fourth hole and the fifth hole and the gallery were moving around when I was putting and if I actually had experience of a President's Cup under my belt, I, I reckon that I would have had a, a, good op- a better opportunity to win the tournament. You talk about the President's Cup. What sort of experience was that to team with um, the likes of other players from around the world? Because golf is such an individual sport, Paz. It's, by definition, it's generally that way. But when it goes to a team event, such as the Ryder Cup or the Solheim Cup for the women or, or the President's Cup in this case for you guys, that must be a very different experience for you. Oh, look, it's a lot of fun. Uh, probably more pressure because you're playing for teammates rather than yourself. And you know you don't want to let your teammates down and the first two presidents cups that i played in we were in america and uh we we performed well as a team but the american team just had more talent there was no question about that and then uh, when we come out to melbourne uh where peter thompson was our captain and you know we had a very strong team and we, you know, we had a lot more knowledge about playing Royal melbourne than the americans and uh, I think that's what it boiled down to. And having Tomo as our captain uh, was, was fantastic. I mean, he'd, we'd sit around the table just waiting to go out to practice and Tomo would be sitting at the end of the, the table and, you know, be talking about, you know, tournaments that he played in. One year he won a, a British Open with a borrowed set of golf clubs and yeah. had to give it back on the Monday after the tournament, you know, back to his uh, you know, sponsor. And, and that wouldn't happen today. One thing I remember about that President's Cup in Melbourne, Paz, at Royal Melbourne, is your partnership with Shigeki Mariyama. You provided us with some of the most memorable moments of that President's Cup, and I'm sure that your mind's eye flashes back to them every now and then. Oh, absolutely. Uh, Shigeki's a great guy, and we were you know, close friends before we actually played the President's Cup, and you know, he was playing really well at the time, and he just needed to be pointed in the right direction as far as, you know, where the hole locations were and, you know, the best spot to hit it under the hole. And, you know, all I had to do was tell him, look, hit it to this part of the green, and he'd hit it there and make life a lot easier for me to putt the next ball or, you know, just knowing the golf course, because I knew the golf course. I'd been going there since I was five. I remember, you know, sitting behind a green with uh, Jane Locke when I was very, very young, mm. and that was my first memory of a golf tournament. 
And the atmosphere that team golf can create, sometimes it gets a little out of control when it comes to things like the Ryder Cup, but to play in front of your home crowd at one of the most famous golf courses in the world, it must have been like playing in a football match. Yeah, very much so. I mean, the the, the gallery, well, the spectators, they were respectful not only to the American team, but to our team as well. And, uh, you know... It was one of those times in, in my career that I'll always look back with very fondly. And, uh, you know, I remember finishing one of the games and I was sitting out in the afternoon and Dawn Fraser come and sat beside me. It was pretty cool. Ah, <laughs> uh, yes. Well, uh, that's the amazing thing about sports people from different sports, that you admire them so much and then you find out that they admire you so much for what you've been able to do. And I suppose you've been lucky with that over the years. We spoke about playing golf with Dan Marino, but uh, over the years you would have touched a a lot of um, sports people, both men and women from different sports. Oh, that's right. I mean, you know, they all want to be golfers. And, yeah. uh, you know, I know golfers want to be golfers, but all the other sportsmen want to be golfers. Well, you certainly made a pretty good fist of being a golfer, and we'll talk about a couple of the big victories in 2002 and 2004, and maybe one that got away when we come back on the other side of the break with Craig Parry on This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. This is Your Sporting Life with Peter Donegan for Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. Delighted to have the great Craig Parry as my guest on This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. Paz, we'll talk about those moments in 2002 and 2004, unforgettable moments, but we can't leave without talking about the Open Championship in 99. Carnoustie was the venue, uh, the venue where Francesco Molinari claimed his big moment earlier this year. Taking us back to 99, was it the one that got away? Absolutely. Um, it was one of those ones when it was all said and done. It was the one where I go, you know, I just blew it today. And it all came down to, to one shot, really, didn't it? One shot on one hole. Yeah, no, it was, it was the back nine. I mean, uh, I got to one shot in, in front of uh, Jean Vandervelt on the 11th hole. And uh, we were playing the, the 12th hole, and I, I was indecision on the tee. Uh, there's a bunker down, two little bunkers, pop bunkers down the right-hand side. It plays back into the wind, really long hole. Uh, we played it as a par four, and um, I just had to hit the fairway, and I was wanting to hit a one iron off the tee and then hit a longer shot into the green. And uh, my caddy at the time, Paddy Jansen, uh, said, I think we need to hit driver. And he was right. We need to hit driver if we're going to get there for two. But the way the wind was, it was a little bit off the left. And um, I didn't want to hit it in, obviously, the fairway bunkers on the right-hand side. And I ended up hitting driver. Uh, It was my decision in the end. Um, And then I got down there and I had a, 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 a poor lie. It was a wispy grass. And decided I was going to hit a pitching wedge up short of the green and then have a, a short shot onto the green. However, I got a fly with my uh, second shot and it went about 150 metres. Now, my pitching wedge normally goes 100 metres or 110 at the most and, uh, you know, for it to just jump and go a long way and then all of a sudden I'm in rough, it's about four foot high and I'm lucky to see the ball and I hit a sand iron and it went a foot and then the next shot I got to the side of the green and I three-putted from there. Uh, from just off the side of the green. But, you know, that was the hole that actually cost me. Uh, And then I bogeyed the next hole, a par three. Didn't make birdie at the par five, which is throwing another shot away. So I've more or less thrown three shots away on on, um, 
12. Another shot away, and then another shot. 14, I make Pajon uh, hit it out to the right, and uh, he makes a bogey, I think it was. And then 16, I hit a 5-iron into about 12 feet, and I didn't make that. So I just feel as I'm throwing shot after shot away. And then on 17, uh, hit it just short of the green for two, chipped up onto the green, and the ball spun on the spot and left me with about a 20-foot a putt. And I knew I had to make it because, you know, Jean was getting way out ahead of me, and uh, all of a sudden I missed a little foot putt for my second putt and made a double bogey there. And uh, then the 18th hole where... Jean ended up having a bit of trouble, and uh, <laughs> and it took a long time to play. It did take a long time to play. You finished up missing the playoff by one shot, and Paul Laurie eventually went on to win the Open Championship. But you talked about Jean Vanderville. You had the best seat in the house. It's one of the more celebrated, bizarre incidents on a golf course. What are your recollections of what he did on 18? Uh, look, I mean, w- when we played 18, uh, and a lot of the commentators didn't actually describe it that well because we were playing in a little misty rain and it didn't show up on the TV. And when you're standing on that 18th hole, you have to hit driver off the tee to get it past all the thick rough, which is, you know, at the start of the, the, the fairway. So Jean hit the right shot and he hit it into the golf course, which is the right play. Uh, for his tee shot because if it goes into the burn he drops it up there knocks it up to short chips it on he still wins the open uh, the, the second shot he's faced now it's into about a, a 10 kilometer hour wind and it's it's a drizzle so he has to take enough club to get over the burn which he did uh, he's hit a nine uh, would have landed middle of the green however when it drifted off into the grandstand it, it hit one of the uprights on on the uh, the grandstand and two round objects hitting each other it had to hit absolutely perfect to go back across the other side of uh, the burn mm. and uh, then all of a sudden now he's in uh wet rough and anyone who plays the game of golf if the grass gets wet the club will turn over and you'll pull it straight left so now he's faced with a shot from about 40 meters and if he grips hold of it and it goes left it goes out of bounds now he's in real trouble and then he has to come back and drop it but what he did he actually deaccelerated because he didn't want it going left and chipped it into the burn i was over the other side of the burn and uh, he took so long to get around the, the bridge and back around and, and get back into the hazard the ball was oscillating and going lower and lower and the tide was actually coming in so when he first did it, the ball was, well, it, it, you could definitely play it out of the, the, the burn. And uh, because of the tides coming in, when he got there, it was probably three quarters of the way underwater. And, you know, he was back far enough from the, the face of the, the wall that he could have actually played it. But he decided to go back and then chip it onto the green and he missed it just off to the right into the bunker. And that's when I played first, hogged my bunker shot. And the crowd obviously went crazy because, you know, what's been happening. And then Jean had to get up and down out of the bunker to actually make the playoff. Yeah, and I remember, I think the famous words of Peter Ellis in the commentary box at the time were, somebody get out there and stop him. Yeah, it was one of those things. I mean, I thought he was really unlucky uh, because if the ball hits in the grandstand and just drops, goes anywhere other than where it did, he would have either got relief from being in the grandstand, he would have got into the drop zone, chipped it on the green. You know, a couple of putts, he wins by two. Um, it's just one of those things. That it was just um, 
really bad luck after really bad luck. Well, let's not talk about the one that was nearly for you. Let's talk about the ones that were. The World Golf Championship 2002 in Washington. Shoot 72 in the first round, seven back from the leaders. And then after that, everything came together. Is that as well as you've ever played? Yeah, definitely that week. I think I had four bogeys for the week. One was the three putt. Um, you know, very demanding golf course. It's, it's probably the tightest golf course that anyone will ever play because of the, uh, the the pine trees down the sides of fairways. And, you know, you could hit it down the middle of every fairway and have to hook your second shot or slice your second shot just to get it on the green. And, and it's just a really demanding golf course. And at the start of the week, I actually had the, in my locker, the PGA Tour had put the qualifying school entry form in my locker and I grabbed it out of my locker and, and threw it straight in the bin before we even started the tournament. I said, I'm not going to the school. I'll either play well and uh, or I'll go to Japan the following year. And all of a sudden I went out and played the best golf I've ever played. And my brother was on the bag at the time and he said, as we were walking up the 18th hole, he said, uh, after I hit it on the green for two, he said, now what are you going to do? Uh, you, you're going to have you know, a three-year exemption on the PGA Tour and I'm going, well, that's a pretty good thing to have. And, you know, my brother caddied for me for quite a number of years, and it was great to have him on the bag at the time. I remember walking up, I think it was the 11th at Karen up with you and your brother going back a few years ago. Um, he was on the bag, I think, at the Blue Monster at Doral in 2004 when you played the most famous shot of your career. Yeah, he... he picked the club in the playoff and um, I'm playing against Verplank for those that don't remember and uh, normally we play the 18th hole at Doral into the wind and uh, it's a real daunting hole with the water down the left and the water at the green and the green's angled a little bit right to left at you and you hit it in the bunker and you're lucky to stop it before you go into the hazard on the left hand side and Verplank gets up and hits it down the right-hand side, and I hit a, one of my best drives. I think it went 320 yards. Uh, it was on the right-hand side of the fairway. And, and Verplank hits a really good shot out of the, the light rough to the right-hand side of the green. It's, he's probably only 25 uh, yards away from the green, or the hole, I should say. And that more or less dictated that I had to be more aggressive with my second shot because if he hits it in the bunker, like most people do, um, you know, all I'm trying to do is get it on the grain. And because he hit a good shot, that meant that I had to actually go a little bit more aggressive. And because you're going downwind, the ball likes to go straight. And uh, normally I would hit a little bit of a, a, a fade in there or a little drift, a couple of yards uh, left to right. And uh, the ball took off straight at the hole. And lo and behold, it went pretty good the whole way. And I didn't actually see it go in. I knew it went in the way the crowd reacted and... Uh, you know, in Miami, it was more or less a home home uh, team advantage for me, or home grant advantage for me because there's so many South Americans in Miami. Uh, at least 60% were barracking for me versus uh, the 40 that would have been barracking for uh, Scott Verplank, <laughs> which is unusual in America. Yes, and then that famous reaction, Paz, where the club went flying and uh, I think a punch of the air and the knee went up and we've seen that thousands of times over and over again. Do you watch that moment back much? Uh, they play it quite a bit when I do on functions and... Um, you know, just going to different golf clubs and, you know, it's fantastic, um, you know, to hit a shot like that. And 
you know, after the tournament itself, I had, uh, you know, Jack Nicholas come up to me and he said, you know, I watched the, the playoff of the uh, Ford Championship. He said, I only got to watch your your shot. And he said, thanks a lot. It was nice and quick. Uh, <laughs> Tiger Woods come up to me uh, because I was a member at Isleworth in America and, and Tiger was a member there as well. And him and Omera went off to Europe and played and Omera won in Dubai. And Tiger asked, he said, uh, who won uh, the Ford Championship? And they said, uh, Paz won with an eagle in a playoff. And they thought... Okay, the first hole at Doral, yeah, playoff, yeah, make an eagle at the first. They said, no, it was the 18th hole, and then Tiger come on. I can't say what he said, but it was words, <laughs> words like, you got to be kidding me. <laughs> so Tiger had something good to say. Uh, Jack Nicholas had something good to say. What about Johnny Miller that week? Yeah, Johnny was uh, pretty vocal in his um, criticism of my game. I mean, as you know, we in sporting... Um, arena with the commentators we, you've got golf on you know five different channels and to be controversial uh, about someone's game I mean in golf you've got 144 players there's going to be 143 losers and uh, Johnny wasn't too kind and you know kept having a go at me and then all of a sudden uh, I win the tournament and I go into the uh, the press centre and the the media said you know what's it like to to win the four championship in the way that you have and I said look I'm the best 17 handicapper to win on the PGA Tour and they said what do you mean by that and I said well Johnny Miller thinks I'm a 17 handicapper <laughs> and uh, Ben Hogan would be puking in his grave uh, about my swing because I had uh, his, his golf clubs and bag on my uh, well, golf bag and so then all of a sudden Johnny Miller had to apologize um, and, and he come and apologized the following week and the media were were uh, pretty much ashamed of what he said and you know every time I see him he says how you going and we get get on reasonably well now so uh, no drama as far as I'm concerned. Were you really angry at the time though did you think why did he need to say something you know as vitriolic as that? Oh, look, he, he was always having a go at the Aussies. I mean, if you look back over many, many years, he's always had a go at anyone from another foreign country other than America. Um, and that that's just the way it is. I mean, you know, he's probably blind in, in his criticism as, of golfers. That was your one of your more memorable moments, the one that everyone remembers. What was your most memorable moment on home soil, Paz? Oh, winning the Australian Open uh, at yeah. the Aussie. Uh, that was well, it's my last victory as well. It was one that I'd never um, won. I'd, I'd lost the playoff in 91 uh, to John Morse at the Australian. Uh, I'd come close probably on eight occasions where I finished in the top three. Uh, I played every year since uh, 1984. It was the the event that I always wanted to win, and obviously everyone wants to win your national open, and uh, it just took a little bit longer than the other tournaments. It was worth the wait, though, wasn't it? Because it, you said it was at the Australian Golf Club. I, I still think it's probably the best tournament course um, in Australia, a, a great venue and uh, an incredible finishing hole, uh, just an incredible golf course. To win there must have been very special too. Oh, very much so. I mean, my first victory in Australia was at the Australian and New South Wales Open in 87. So I, I knew the golf course and Jack Nicholas was the architect. And, um, you know, with m playing the PGA Tour, my, my first memorial event, I played with Jack Nicholas, And, you know, he knows the golf course really well. And in his last event on the PGA Tour, 
I actually played with Jack Nicholas and I got his golf ball signed. Uh, he beat me by a shot. He got up and down out of the bunker at the 17th hole and you know, it was a pretty impossible bunker shot. And he's not renowned for being the best short game in the world, but he, he just gave me a wink and goes, well, that was pretty good. And, uh, you know, I was talking to Jack about the golf course of the Australian and, you know, I'd made a couple of changes to the course over uh, a few years and, you know, the, the golf course, I, I love playing it and, um, you know, it's just a wonderful championship golf course, as you say. Some magnificent memories of some of the great moments of your career. We're just about out of time, but we'll take our final break and we'll be back to wrap things up on the other side of the break with Craig Parry on This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funerals, Celebrating Lives. This is Your Sporting Life with Peter Donegan for Tobin Brothers Funerals, Celebrating Lives. Hope you've enjoyed the chat with Craig Parry, our final segment now. Paz, it just occurred to me when you were talking just before the break, you have a conversation with Jack Nicholas. Here you are talking with Tiger. Uh, did you pinch yourself at times, the little fella from Sunshine in Victoria up in the rarefied air and talking to the greats of the game? And uh, you were pretty comfortable being in that illustrious company as well. Oh, look, I mean, you do have to pinch yourself at times. I mean, the first time I met Jack Nicholas, I was playing with his son Jackie in a, the British Open qualifying at North Berwick in the very first hole. I'm about 60 feet away and Jack's holding the flag and there's about 5,000 people watching Jack Nicholas caddy. And, um, you know, that was a pretty daunting moment. And, um, you know, I was quite lucky with the, the people I've played with and uh, you've know, been able to actually get out on the golf course with you know Ballesteros he was wonderful uh, spent many hours with him around the short game and uh, you know to watch the best play there's a great fellowship amongst golfers worldwide and that was displayed just going back a few weeks ago now when Australian golf and indeed the world of golf had a very sad moment with the passing of Jared Lyle. I'm sure you felt it as much as just about everybody else in the game in Australia did. Yeah, it was a horrible moment and um, you know it, it showed how much he affected not only golfers in Australia but from around the world, uh, the European tour, the US tour, the amount of friends and people he influenced and uh, become a part of their life. Yeah, and uh, the displays from the players who were playing in the tournament that, uh, or the PGA that happened uh, just after that, it just showed the regard that he was held in. And he was just such a lovable character as well. He had that glint in his eye whenever you saw him. Yeah, that's right. I mean, he, he was larger than life and, um, you know, he, he was a bloody good golfer. And, you know, over the period of time, I mean, he, he beat Leukemia the first time and then come back and play and then he did it again. You've you got to wonder, was he 100% fit the whole time? I mean, if he wasn't, imagine what he would have done on the golf course. Did you ever get to wear a pair of his underwear, Paz? Because he, he got into that towards the uh, the end of his life. No, I didn't get into his underwear, but I, I've got a duck. Right. Um, I've got Luke the duck, so, uh, you know, I've got that at home. Yeah. He used to, um, or well, he gave the underwear to a few of the players, and uh, James Nitties was one who told the story that uh, he was quite enthusiastic about Jared's underwear. He said it was, uh, when you put it on, it was like resting your private parts on a cloud. So that was probably the highest compliment you could get paid. <laughs> and I cleaned he that one. Did, I cleaned that one up too. He probably didn't have a big enough size for me, mate. 
<laughs> now, I've, I've just got to ask you about that. Speaking of Jared, you know, Jared was a, a big man on the golf course and, and uh, well, we all know your stature. Did you ever at any stage try and alter your stature and did that work for you when you did? Mate, I... I got fit believe it or not a mm. few times in my career how was your game and when you got fit it went south really quick as well <laughs> i lost a lot of the feeling in my hands so my chipping was very poor the distance control on iron shots was uh very poor as well so in the end i ended up going back to don't worry about what's happening in the gym yeah just go go back to actually practicing so rather than being in the gym for another hour, I'd go and practice my short game for another hour. And obviously you get paid for what you score, you shoot. So uh, it was probably a better way of doing it. And I mean, Jason Day at the moment, or a couple of months ago, come out and said that he was going to give away the gym. And I thought that's a good thing for him. Well, that was the thing with Tiger for a while. The, the conversation was that Tiger just became a, too muscle-bound. He was a gym junkie. As great as he was, he, was, uh, um, he just looked like a condom full of walnuts, if you like. Yeah, at the moment, even in the PGA a few weeks ago, you could see that he's not as big as what he yeah. was you know, a couple of years ago. I can't imagine when you said that you'd lost your touch in your hands, I can't imagine that because that was, when I think of you, I think about that magnificent touch you had around the greens. Your short game is as good as anyone who's played the game in Australia, I think. Yeah, well, my short game got me out of a, you know, the, the days when you don't play as well. And uh, I always thought about when I was growing up, if you've got a good short game, uh, that can get you through when you're playing poorly. And it's also obviously going to help you when you're playing well. So final question, Paz, are we more likely to see you on the golf course or are we more likely to see you on your boat, perhaps on Sydney Harbour these days? Probably more likely to find me out in the harbour. What do you like about it? I just love getting out in the water. Um, you know, Sydney Harbour, it doesn't get any better than, than that. Uh, a few years ago, I used to be scuba diving. You could scuba dive in the harbour. and The aquatic life that's down there is is amazing. Um, the, the Hawkesbury, getting up on the Hawkesbury River, I love getting up there and uh, it's very tranquil. Well, it's been anything but tranquil, some of the moments that you've had on golf courses over the years, and we've relived just a, a few of those today. I must say, it's always been a delight for me to um, catch up with you on the golf course, to say good day. You're one of the great characters of Australian golf and always quick with a hello and a smile, and it's been a pleasure to watch you over the years and such a pleasure to catch up with you this morning. Craig Perry, thanks for your time. No worries at all, Peter. Thank you. Great to have Paz on the show and hope you enjoyed that and we'll be back with another edition of This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funerals. Same time next week. We'll catch you then. Want to witness the world's biggest football game? Head to iCanWin.com.au, predict Australia's score with a crystal ball and it could be you and a friend at the FIFA World Cup Qatar 2022 semifinals all thanks to McDonald's. Maccas, together and loving it. TNCs apply.